Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All right. Now, typewriters are all over the place. All right. Tom, Tom Hanks has brought typewriters back. Do you know this? No. He's a big super typewriter head. Yeah. Right? And... Uh, I even wrote a book of short stories a couple of years ago yeah. where there's a typewriter featured in every short story. He, really? He, he works on typewriters. Yeah. Really? sort of a thing. Yeah, I get people asking me all the time, they're like, do you use a typewriter because of Tom Hanks? I'm like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but uh, I'm glad that he's, you know, bringing it out. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're around. Welcome to A Lot to Learn with Austin Rogers. For the guy who knows everything, he's still got a lot to learn. Poetry is one of those things you should like, but you're not sure if you do. You know, a person who perceives themselves as a certain stature or intellectualism feels they should be well-versed in their Eliot and Byron and Angelou and Dickinson and Hughes. And granted, some poetry grabs you and you get it. You just get it immediately. But mostly many people find it inaccessible, willfully confusing, or worse, just plain boring. Luckily, luckily for us, Chris Vidiello, a.k.a. Poetry Fox, is here to gain us entry into a world of words that's way more approachable than we ever thought. Poetry Fox and I sat down a couple months ago in Raleigh, North Carolina, to discuss how he gets the word word out. Uh, That poetry is not that hard to get, and if you want to get it, it's actually pretty cool. Be sure to stay to the end of this episode when Poetry Fox just shows how amazing he is with WordCraft by creating some truly amazing poems from the ether. Without further ado, here is Chris Vitiello, a.k.a. Poetry Fox. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good night. I have no idea what time it is because it's a podcast and people listen to podcasts whenever they might listen to podcasts. Perhaps you're on the way to work or perhaps you are in a bubble bath. I don't know where you are, but you're going to enjoy this one because we are in the Carolinas right now, the North Carolina to be specific, where we're going to talk to Chris Vitiello, who is a Renaissance man, a writer, a performer, a critic, uh, the first inaugural Rabkin Arts Criticism uh, Foundation Prize for Arts Journalism recipient, a resident, a 25-year resident of Durham, North Carolina, and also, we will get to it soon, the Poetry Fox. Welcome, Chris. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. This is going to be, this is going to be a great one because you are all over the board. And before we started talking, we started to talk about, you know, that, uh, that, Go do it, sort of spirit, where you're in a smaller town and you feel that there aren't barriers to entry, where you can dabble in everything. You can be a journalist and an artist and a curator and a poetry fox and everything. And then Chris said to me, and I think this is an interesting place to start as, you know, two straight white men, barrier to entry. Yeah, I mean, uh, we we get to just dive into everything, don't we? I mean, it's sort of 
you don't ask permission. You just say, that looks interesting. I'm curious about that. Let's, let's, let's do that. Let's get our hands in this and make a mess of it. We you were, can, you, we get to be incoherent and, and, uh, all over the place because it's a little bit of, uh, use the P word, but there's a little bit of privilege in, embedded in this in that we, uh, it's sort of our world in a way. And we're allowed to be like, boys will be boys. They're just going to go learn and eventually they'll get it right. You know? Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not, a, it's not being irresponsible. I think it's, uh, it's, we, it's called being enthusiastic. Right. It's called, uh, being involved. It's called being a Renaissance man. We've, we've made up these terms for ourselves and you know, we, I think that privilege manifests itself as safety. We, we can fail and repeatedly land on our feet and yeah. go to the next thing and yeah, fail repeatedly. That's yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah. Our, our failures sometimes even look like successes. Um, if we, uh, if we spin it right. Yeah. Know, so, and there yeah. is, there is that ex post facto spin to be like, Oh, he tried that and look how it made him grow. Yes, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> failure, failure, preneurism. <laughs> right, 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 right. And, and, and also the failing upward syndrome. Uh, yeah. Um, well, let's start at the beginning of <laughs> not, not our privilege, but let's, let's keep that in mind as we go on through it. And um, why poetry? What brought you here? What brought you to poetry? What brought you to criticism? What brought you to the world of words rather than... Uh, any other creative outlet? Because clearly it's creativity, but what is the onus on this one? I mean, I think I got into words right out of the shoot. I was probably writing. I mean, I was kind of writing before I was writing. I was, you know, dictating things for my parents to write down before I could make the letters, basically. <laughs> um, I, but poetry always seemed different. It was um, obviously different from, like, what was in the newspaper or what was on the radio. It was just a different kind of language. And if there's something that is uh, contrary to normality, that's that's what I'm going to be attracted to, uh, something something contrary. So I think that poetry there was this just other mode of language. Meaning sat in it very differently. I could tell that from the start. You know, it's like sing songy. Sometimes it's just sing songy because sing songy sounds are fun to say out loud or say in your head, and the meaning of the words doesn't really make a difference. There's no other sort of normal kind of uh, language production that, that adheres to that. So, so I, was, I was kind of in it from the beginning and really wanted to produce it as well. I'm like, I want to I make some of this stuff. Let's, let's get a pen and let's start you know, making marks on paper until they're poems. Sing songy is also how we sort of have our formative years. We have all our nursery rhymes. We have our Dr. Seuss's. We have yeah. our tongue twisters. We have our patty cake games. All of them have a sing songy element of it. So um, I, I know English is an incredibly rich language. I believe it's the largest vocabulary of any language on earth. Um, and I wonder, I, I don't know, uh, no, other, no, everyone has little rhymey sing-songy things going on. There's oh, something, yeah. there's gotta be something innate to the sing-songiness. Well, I think it's the, the first, you know, the first language output that we make isn't articulations. We aren't saying words. We're, we're making the sounds that our mouths and our lungs and our respiratory system can make. That you know, end up just forming start, the words. Yeah. And, and, you know, as soon as you say da or ma or something like that your parents freak the geek out <laughs> and then you're like i'm gonna say that again <laughs> i think i can make them freak out again this is pretty cool and suddenly you're speaking words so 
You're right. And there is an immediate tangible response when you say da or ma and the, the, the eyes light up. And I guess there is, you know, there is joy getting Sally Solar seashells down the eyes. <laughs> See that. <laughs> There's a joy in nailing that, yeah. right? Uh, or or not? Or it's or not? Still pleasant. Oh yeah, yeah it's still pleasant because <laughs> now 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 you are uh, self-deprecating yourself because you're like, oh, I'm I'm not part of the group yet, but I'm going to try. Yeah. Um. Now and then words get bigger and deeper, and then you start getting into poetry without sing-songy elements, and start getting into imagery and deeper stuff like that, um, which to me is cool because a lot of our critics, our famous critics throughout history were also poets. So yeah. the two have the two have a dramatic overlap, don't they? I mean, Shaw, uh, George Bernard Shaw, poet, yeah. playwright, and, um, yeah. and Frank critic. Frank O'Hara. Yeah. Um, you know, great critic curator, uh, John Ashbery. Uh, may he rest in peace. Recent death there. Um, yeah. Plenty, plenty of great, great poets have also been you know, great critic critics of visual of the visual arts largely. And you but, are a critic of the visual arts. I write about visual arts and some performing arts too. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's let's we're going to get to a lot of things because you're all <laughs> you're all over the place in the best possible way. Um, let's get to the inaugural Rabkin Prize for Arts Journalism. What I was, was I was one of a cohort of winners. I think uh, there were six winners the first year. Well, that's still. One of six for the first year. Mm-hmm. I think that's still pretty prestigious. Yeah, I'll take it. Um, and that was quite a substantial award, wasn't it? Yeah, it was fifty grand. That's that's nothing to cough at or sneeze I, at. Or, I was more than happy to deposit that check. Yeah. Um, talk about talk about what led you down that criticism route to start uh, to go for that uh, prize. Well, I think I just like throughout my whole life, I've been really interested in the visual arts. I grew up in the Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C., so I was always in the museums, uh, the great museums in D.C., which are free museums. So, uh, you know, during me and my buddies in high school, we were always just in the museums looking at work. So it was was a big part of growing up is knowing a lot about about the visual arts and particularly sort of 20th century and contemporary art was what I was most interested in. So I'd always, you know, written about it, taken notes while I was looking at it, trying to figure it out, sort of in the same way that you do when you're reading a poem and trying to figure it out. Um, and then uh, I guess it was that I, lo- I got laid off from a job at, uh, at one point. I had like a lunch meeting and went into the lunch meeting. Uh, you know, it was a day job at this educational company and they laid me off mm. um, unexpectedly. And so I'm driving home from it thinking I have to make something positive happen in this moment. I've just been canned. So I just started, as I'm driving home, calling people and saying, hey, do you have some work? And I called a friend of mine who's an editor, and he's like, yeah, can you write about art? I'm like, uh, yes, you know, because you say yes to anything. Yep. He said, yep. do you, can you raise giraffes? I would have said yes. Um, and so he said, well, go to the uh, – I need – you know, I had somebody who was going to write about this show at the Nasher Museum uh, of Art at Duke University. Um, go – Go go see that show. So I I just went straight from my layoff meeting to the museum. And Literally that day. Yeah, in the car, drove. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, okay, now I'm an art art critic. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do this now. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'd read a lot of. I mean, I'm a, a consistent, constant reader of art criticism. So it wasn't like it was this genre of writing or realm of writing that I wasn't really familiar with already. I was. 
um, as a reader, but, you know, would just write like a blog post or a page in a notebook about art. But then I had to put together a coherent 800 words about a show and it was in the newspaper. So I just kind of dove into that. That is, uh, you know, so I used to work at a museum called Asia Society on Park Avenue in New York. Oh, yeah. And, um, and I am an avid museum goer as well. And uh, 50% of the time, uh, I am in awe by the scholarship of the curatorial staff. And 50% of the time, I'm like, you're just making words up now, aren't you? Aren't you? When you're talking about like the mellifluous synergy between East and West and stuff like that, I'm like, you're just you're just going thesaurus jello right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what element of that uh, do you try to avoid or, when necessary, embrace in art criticism? I've had a little bit of... Uh protection in that. I mean, it's like I kind of would write about what I wanted to write about. So uh, there have been very few negative reviews or, or sort of things that I had to grit my teeth and, and get through, you know? Right. Um, it wasn't exactly like I was given assignments. I would say, well, here are two shows I'm interested in. Okay, go write about that one. So I sort of had some, you know, some advantage there. Uh, but, but I think I just go in and, and react. I mean, I try to have an experience that's a lot like maybe not an art historian's experience or a sort of curatorial uh, perspective in the activity of writing because I'm not an art historian. Right. Um, but I'm somebody who grew up going to museums and looking at work and getting super turned on by it or super turned off by it. So, you know, I, I'm pretty good at looking at visual work. I've just done it for a long time. So I was like, I'll just write from that perspective of a museum goer of coming in and seeing the work with some background information in, in the piece of writing, uh, for sure. But, but basically just here's, here's what's, here's what's in the, in the gallery. Here's what you're going to see. Here are the kind of ideas that are passing in and out of it. Here are the things that I thought about when I was writing it. I have, uh, I've interviewed several artists on this program and it is interesting trying to, uh, establish, uh, a vernacular that for them to establish a vernacular because for them the act of painting is more often not it's not so much unpremeditated it's just less structured than me viewing it because I go oh this reminds me of you know uh Twombly and they'd be like I don't know who that is mm-hmm. and I go okay okay what about this might and and, and I'll, I'll be like oh well maybe it's a little bit Rauschenberg and they're like not familiar and I'm like mm. <laughs> yeah and I find it I find it hard for me to uh start speaking in uh uh, start speaking without going down that rabbit hole of uh, of citing other works and citing other things without uh, without citing them overtly, you know. Uh, absolutely, and I think part of that is is where an editor comes in. Of of a you know, I was writing primarily for an arts weekly, like a free newspaper, uh, Indie Week. Actually, at first it was called the Independent. Now it's called Indie Week. Um, and I've had, uh, you know, editors over the years, David Fellerath, Brian Howe, uh, Grayson Curran are, are sort of three editors that I worked with the most who, who kind of have that alarm. They'll it's reel like, you yeah, in. Yeah, if I'm saying this is Twombly-esque, they're like, yeah, no, no, you can't, yeah, you got to work on that. You got to right. pad, pad that out. You can say it looks like Cy Twombly's work, 
comma, and then what that is. With, I mean, like, yeah, it's dramatic. This has to freehand be freehand strokes and chalkboard of, inspiration. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, see, you're, you do know how to do it. That's pretty good. Oh, see, but I just had to do that right now. Usually I'd just be like, looks like science wombling, move on. Yeah, but when uh, somebody tells you, you have to, you have to pad that out. You have to explain that to a sort of arts interested um, but maybe arts, not arts adjacent. You well, know? it's like you know, our, the, know your know your audience. Yeah. Uh, and our audience for a lot of the work that I was writing that that earned that prize um, was, and and it's not lost on me that that prize was for arts journalism, not art criticism. You know, I think there's Ooh. there's a there's a sort of fine differentiation point. Art criticism is really kind of the art world, you know, looking at itself and writing about itself within a historical context. Arts journalism is more writing about art within a social context. And, and that was what we were about. And I think I accidentally conflated the two there. And I think you just drew that distinction. And I, I like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, there was another uh, writer in the same cohort of winners uh, as me, uh, Carolina Miranda, who writes for the LA times. She's amazing, you know. She's she's writing about like uh, you know work in the in the Getty and writing about uh, uh, you know strip club signage. You know uh, these are these aren't your. Is, there's art historical information in there that's that's coming into play. She has a tremendous body of knowledge there, but she's writing about you know work that you see in your everyday life. The readers of the LA Times are all over the place, much more than the readers of the publication that I was writing for. I mean, so, yeah. sur- surviving Roman mosaics are now in museums, but they were probably just advertising the carriage maker. Yeah, and yeah exactly. Th- there it is, you know? So the Bada Bing Club may be on the wall of uh, MoMA 2250 <laughs> uh, after the great upheaval. Yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming there's got to be one at a certain point in time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sure they changed their name. Yeah, exactly. It'll be a Blade Runner-esque melange between three different languages. Mm, nice. <laughs> um, yeah, journalism is different than criticism uh, because it seems uh, the, critis- the critic embeds the self into the work, but you just tend, a journalist tends to observe. I, it's not strictly that, but that's a, that's a worthwhile way to differentiate the two, you know? I mean, I think a journalist has to, has to think more about the immediate audience for the piece of writing. Um, uh, maybe that's not true either, but it was certainly always there. I was always thinking, imagining somebody reading it and, and knowing what to do with it. Um, also, you know, I'm writing about, I hate to use this term, uh, uh, local artists, you know, artists who are not major artists, they aren't in a major museum. They probably never will be in a major museum, but they're making substantial work. They're in a gallery locally, why should people go see that on Saturday instead of, you know, going to Costco and buying 10,000 Cheetos? Uh, <laughs> uh, this is this is the sort of case that I would be imagining uh, making in, in a piece of writing. Which, which is a perfect segue into the community. This is all interlocked. Yeah. And you chose to hang your hat in Durham. Durham, the Raleigh-Durham metro area, this is really remarkable. I've only driven through here before. I haven't spent uh, extensive time here. And these are two thriving cities and just hotbeds 
of university life. There's like 9,822 universities here, and all of them are nine times bigger than my school. <laughs> and there's 44,000 of them. They are just going up exponentially each time. Right? Um, and you chose to hang your hat here, uh, not necessarily in Durham in general, but these smaller you know, academically oriented communities, what's the appeal to it for, you know, the either urban dweller of one of the major cities or someone who's like on the transition. They're like, I got to move out of my small town, but I'm not, I'm never going to Philadelphia, you know? Um, talk about that a little bit. And the community's built around here. Yeah, I mean, there, there are, of course, a lot of things that go into your choice of where you go. And sometimes it isn't so much of a choice as, as, um, as you might, think it is, right? I mean, uh, I finished graduate school, had several different options about where to go. Um, I was married at the time, and we decided to come back east where families were um, because we'd been out in Colorado. Uh, Meanwhile, kind of all of the other, all of my friends moved out to the San Francisco Bay Area. It was still affordable to live there at that time. (laughs) You know, early 90s, mid 90s, when when Um, you could actually get a, a studio apartment in San Francisco and and you know live live the life of an artist there um and scrounge you were scrounging but it was possible so everybody moved out there and i was i was lonely for the west coast i really would have loved to have lived in san francisco at that time and visited as frequently as i could put money together to do it but i was here and it took a while for me to be happy about being in durham right. um i mean it was quiet it was really quiet and i felt that this is a nowhereville and I'm not going to be able to do anything here, you know, but eventually what you realize is that in order, if it's quiet and there isn't stuff going on, you have to get off your ass and find other people who want to have things going on and start doing things, you know, start making things be going on. So, right. So it, I think it took a while of, of growing up for me to, to really understand that if I wanted the place to be different, I had to be a part of changing it to be different. Well, um, let's go through some of those changes. How does one, you know, come to either by choice or by circumstance, come to uh, a smaller community and sort of grow their own garden, so to speak? I what what steps do you take? How do you get out there and meet people? What clubs are there? I don't I don't even know because I have a hard time pe- meeting people in New York unless they're at the bar. You know, <laughs> well you can that going to the bar is the first step, of course. Um, <laughs> uh, the bar, or the cafe. Um, I you know this was early internet days where um, you know you were you weren't posting on Facebook. You were posting a little tear sheet on the bulletin board outside the bathrooms in the coffee shop type of type of world at that time. So, right. um, so you do that, you say, Hey, uh, interested in being in a poetry group. You start going to open mics and you know, you go to open mics and they suck generally. <laughs> <laughs> They're kind of, uh, you know, know. So you're like, you would drive home with hopelessness. You're like, wow, this was, this was terrible. I'm not going to do that one again. We'll try the other one. You know? I've done so, open mics, both, Music side and comedy side. Oh wow! Yikes! Um, better, better at the. I'm, I'm actually way better at the comedy side than I am at the music side because all my music. They're laughing at you, not oh, with you. Oh no! Yeah, no. It, the music side was like, let me let me whine about this girl more on acoustic guitar with a harmonica. Wine, 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 wine. At least comedy. Mm-hmm. I'm like, let me make fun of myself 
about loving this girl. <laughs> well, sometimes, you know, poetry open mics are like that, but without the acoustic guitar. Oh. Um, you know, I mean, uh, not to belittle it, but uh, but you you just start you just start going to everything. You're like, well, let's let's find out everything that's here, that's, that's going on. You know, and you do that, and you start to first of all lose some of your preconceptions about other kinds of things that you aren't interested in. You're like, well, you know, that poem was. Uh, not the kind of poem that I ever would read, but it was fine, and that person seemed interesting. So let's get in touch with each other. And oh. it took me a while to grow up enough to to be like, if you're not into totally experimental 20, 20th century American poetics, then you're nothing. Right? You know, I had to I had to release a lot of those prejudices and and realize that if somebody's writing a sort of rural lyric. Uh, I need to recognize when it's well done and sincere and I should know that person and we should be getting together on Saturday and sharing work and getting to know each other. So a sort of group ends up developing out of that where everybody's maybe different, coming from different backgrounds, heading in different directions, but you have a mutual respect for what other people do. And I think that's a decent definition for a community right there. And poetry, poetry is... Poetry almost is with a capital P because when people hear poetry, it's, it's daunting. It is, it's, it's, it's almost inaccessible or those who think it's inaccessible, uh, have a prejudice that it is inaccessible and it's not something that you can just go and experience. It's, Pardon me. It's like it's it's learned, not learned. It's learned, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But you have a complete other facet of your personality that's trying to break down that barrier, making the big P poetry into the small P poetry. I, I played the field on this one. I mean, I, I've uh, I've published three books, and they're they're big P poetry. They're big books. P. Yeah, yeah. These are not um, you know your your popular. These aren't going to be popular books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, they weren't supposed to be, you know. But you published three books, and most yeah. people can't say that. Oh, yeah. But, um, um, yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You know, there are kinds of writing that is kind of experimental. Language and meaning have a different relationship, and that's being tested, and it's really writing kind of about writing. Um, this isn't... This is why you have an English teacher at some point who says, okay, so what does this mean? We need to interpret this. And I think where a lot of people get pushed away from poetry is 
those sort of early moments where they read a poem and they say, I think it's about this. And, and a teacher says, no, it's not about that. It's actually the poet is writing about trees, but they're actually writing about society. Right. You know? And, and then you're like, I don't, I don't, I don't why, get this why, stuff. I'm going to go. You just did the opposite. Magazine, yeah. You know, you just yeah. did the opposite of improv, man. You knowed me. <laughs> it's yes. And it's not no, but you know, uh, you're, you're right. You know, uh, Ooh, I think that imagery was blah. I remember that once. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a class. I forgot. The class was, I think, called Humanities. I think it was 11th grade or Humanities. Humanities. Yeah. And uh-huh. it, was, it was everything. And he goes, uh, you know, uh, uh, we listened to Strawberry Fields Forever. Oh, cool. And he put up like five paintings. And he goes, which one does it correlate closest with? And I go, it correlates closest with uh, The Gleaners by Millet. Uh, because I knew what that work was, and I don't know, there were a couple other ones uh, up there, and I'm low. Well, because Strawberry Fields Forever is evocative of a, uh, a, a scene from John Lennon's past, because I knew the history of the song, uh, and the Gleaners was Millet uh, looking at the, the end of the agrarian, and he goes, no, John Lennon's writing surrealistic imagery right here. You should have picked that painting. I go... Fuck you. Yeah, yeah. yeah, put on a dunce hat. I mean, go sit in the corner. Yeah. The gleaners? God. I don't know. What I, an I'm like, idiot. I'm like, come on, man. I would have been like, what's the red one? Strawberries are red. You yeah. know? <laughs> uh, but you, you are working towards accessibility, at least in a nice, happy, fun way. Let's talk about uh, your Chris's alter ego. Yeah. Um, alter ego. I'm the poetry Fox. Uh, some years ago, relative gave me a Fox mascot outfit, um, as a joke. And, uh, um, I started doing what a lot of poets do. This is not, um, uh, I mean, this is really common now. Typewriter poetry, street poetry, Yep. sit on the street with a typewriter, say, Hey, give me a prompt. Give me a word. Talk to me for a minute. I'll write you a poem and hand it to you. You know, there, there are a lot of typewriter poets around. I think only one wears the giant fox suit, um, but I sometimes do it as a human now. Uh, but yeah, you know, having to write a poem for somebody on the spot is uh, is a lot of fun, and I I think I've probably written about twelve thousand poems wow. in the fox suit over the years. So, wow! Yeah, it's laundered, right? Uh, frequently, yes. <laughs> uh, we, it goes in the bathtub and, and gets gently laundered. We will, yeah. uh, on Instagram, when this interview comes out, please take a look at it. What's your Instagram so they can see some photos of the Poetry Fox? Oh, at the Poetry Fox. At the Poetry Fox. Go check out the Poetry Fox right now. And um, let's see the uh, Poetry Fox Sans Fox costume in action right now because uh, Mr. Fox, fantastic Mr. Fox, has brought... His accoutrement of choice, and you're hearing it right there. What what kind of typewriter is this? This is a Royal Safari typewriter. Is this like coveted amongst the the uh, street poet world, or is this just your personal favorite, or this is just the typewriter you got right now? It is not coveted among the, <laughs> <laughs> the typewriter gentia. No, I mean it's not a. It was a kind of a nice looking typewriter, yeah. um, but it's also kind of big and chunky and heavy, and mo- mo- most of us, yeah, you know, like 
I, I, I have a, a couple Adlers and, an, and a, a couple Olivetti's, and those are the typewriters. That those, those, the, those, those are the typewriters. Those are the sexy typewriters. Those are the sexy I don't know about the Adlers. I like the Adlers because that's the type of typewriter that uh, Jack Nicholson's character wrote on in The Shining. So oh, I, have like, I know yeah. exactly what that looks like. Yes, yes you do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, so that's, that's awesome. kind of a little violent appeal. But um, <laughs> yeah, this is just uh, this. In fact, this typewriter doesn't even work great. Um, it, it, it puts it has a hiccup in it. It puts random spaces in between words. Right. I kind of am a bit of a spastic typist. So, uh, yeah. So there there will be spaces in between words. <laughs> I'm waiting for the point in time where. Uh, uh, when I was growing up, I was not, you know, my friends were a little bit wealthier than me and, uh, and my family. So when I had to print, uh, papers, we had one of those brother electronic ones where it only had these single line LCD. So you could write one sentence in that LCD, double check it and hit enter and it would print it. Mm -hmm. I'm waiting for that to become retro cool again. (laughs) I remember those. Those were terrible. They were absolutely abysmal. (laughs) You you don't write one line at a time. I know, right? You'd (laughs) have to write, you'd have to write like one sentence, check it, hit enter and go and then write interrupter. Write us interruptus. Uh, it's was. the opposite of William's Gen- William Jennings Bryan. It's the great interrupter. Um, well, I'm not going to prompt you for a poem, but right now Maria is in the room. So Maria, prompt, yeah, prompt, yeah, give me a give me a word. Prompt, it, it could be any word, any word you want, any word, and and I'll make a poem off it. Kimono. Kimono. Kimono okay. is yeah. the word, and the poetry fox goes to work on his trusty royal. It's a powder blue royal. Uh, typewriter and I don't know there's still something very satisfying about hearing that sound even though it's definitely a sound of the past no it's something that we don't hear anymore but automatically everyone knows what it is I doubt you could say the same of a dot matrix printer because some generations will never have heard them and meanwhile this to me Sounds like the end of Family Ties. (laughs) I love listening to this. I hope you guys like listening to this as much as I do. And watching him at work is amazing. All right, I think there's a poem. There's a poem. Some typos, but that happens. Uh, well, that is what happens in the era of the spontaneous, you know. Um, <laughs> does the author care to read it? Yeah, yeah, I'll read it at you. Please. Let's see what we have. The, the, the word prompted by Maria was kimono. Kimono was the word. Okay. Drunk businessmen stumbling past the porn handouts scattered on Tokyo sidewalk. You dodge and duck into a phone booth to avoid one vomiting at the foot of a kimono in a shop window, looking forward to sunrise and a soy egg in the hotel. There you go. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in absolute awe of that. I well, mean, we worked vomiting and porn into it, so that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> I mean, no, no, no. No, I mean, if, if what we were going with, with was poetry is inaccessible and dense and academic and only for the learned, uh, right there, if you don't get the imagery of that 
even without ever have been to Tokyo, but Tokyo immediately evocative, neon lights, frantic pace, Japanese businessman, immediately evocative, right? They are very staid, but then you threw in they were drunken Japanese businessmen. So now we've got that. So you've got the whole thing. Uh, I that is a that it's an yeah. entire scene and an entire painting and as a start, finish, and end. Because all right, here we go. The viewer of this scene does not come until the end when you say that they're looking forward to the egg in the hotel. So we don't know who's watching it, but now we know who's watching it. Yeah. You are watching it as you're walking by and you're, you're like, wow, that was amazing. Can I please go home now? Yeah, yeah, you know. I love you gotta, it. You got to locate. I, well, <laughs> locate yourself at the end of it. It's a I, good way to end a poem. Well, beca- well, because just out of, out, of, out of the ephemera, out of the ether, you just painted in seconds, in minimal words, an entire evocative scene. And I think that is <laughs> an immense talent. And, and also, what joy you just made in seconds and think of it amplified by uh, the poetry fox doing it. Like, this is, not, this is not disposable art. This is full-formed art and the full experience. I really love yeah, it. You're I mean, bringing I'm, joy. Well, I think, and I, I'm glad that you're using that word um, because, I, th- I mean, I've, and I've talked to other typewriter poets and uh, heard this from them as well. I, I think it's not so much about like the poem that you make in that it is about this transaction that you have between the poet and somebody getting a poem from you. Yeah. And there's, there's something about seeing something made right before your eyes. Uh, it's a little bit of a miraculous act, even though I think for experienced poets, it's kind of not, you like get an idea and you go into it and you make it good. And then you find a, you know, find an ending. Um, uh, there's there's sort of a way to do it, and and you've obviously done improv and music, and you know like just jump off the cliff and then make sure that you survive the landing. You yeah, know? yeah, kinda, ah. yeah. You don't look for the land, place to land; you just survive it. You know. But the luck with music is you typically don't improvise music alone. So you've got a team to back you up. Uh-huh. If you're falling apart, you can look over and be like, "Yo, bail me out of this." You you have no net. You're 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 at your own you're at your own knife. You know. Yeah, but I mean, the other part is that generally people bring, uh, especially if the, if somebody's wearing a big fox costume making a poem, it's, it looks goofy. So <laughs> they're they're they don't know exactly what expectations to bring to it. So I don't have expectations to disappoint necessarily it's like i'm not sure what's going to happen here and then a poem happens and i think it you know people generally are going to be pleased by that they're like oh my god i can't believe something came out of this dude in a fox suit with an old typewriter okay <laughs> there there's a, there was a poem there you know and i mean like uh, the poem I, I think poems are usually fine this is a i think a pretty typical poetry fox poem um but uh you know people People show you a lot when you're sitting there with a typewriter. They're, they're, that lack of expectations, they end up kind of letting their guard down. And so the combination of a word given by somebody and just getting to sort of see them and hear their voice, and it, you actually get a lot of information in that to start your poem. 
I I'm I am hesitating to uh, to fall on the crutch of cliche, but you know I used to work in advertising. I worked in events and stuff like that, and the buzzwords amongst the people in this is like <laughs> we want to design something that will you know oh, what what a surprise and amaze or or amaze and sparkle or something I don't know. There's always like these. Keywords on delight, delight and amaze. Okay, they're like they're like we want we want this experience to delight and amaze, but that actually th- this there's no contrivance between this. This is one delight because it's pure joy in what you're issuing, and two, it is amaze because this came fully formed, not fully formed, obviously, but this came from nothing. And that, that combination, I don't know, I always think about this, the combination of words that have never been issued before, you know, uh, like milk washing machine toast douchebag has been said before because (laughs) someone definitely, you, you put that milk in my washing machine, you toasty douchebag, right? That has been said before, but like, I love, I love the fact that words with there's so many of them you can create a sentence that has never been said before and it could be nonsense or it could be really really real mm-hmm. um so yeah delight it's delightful and amazing that you're just making joy and that you can create this because most people can't do that well it's really fun on the on the writer side of it too um you know to get just to just to write poems over and over again you know like I'll, I'll do a lot of events and we'll write 50, 60 poems at a sitting, um, one, one right after the other with no kind of pause in between or, or break or anything like that. And it's pretty exhilarating as a writer to, to get to do that, Yeah, to just be like, yeah, give me another word. I'm gonna write another poem, write another poem. You know, you get into this momentum and, um, you know, nothing else is going on on, on the earth and uh, for you, you're just focused. You're just, you're just making all these poems. Yeah. Now, in your wide breadth of experiences, expertise, and, you know, just variegated life, you are taking this impetus to create and to be a poet, and you're moving it into a new realm. You are starting seminars for whom? This is very new. Um, You know, people ask me a lot. Like, how do you do that exactly? And to me, it's a little bit, I think to most typewriter poets, it's kind of matter of fact. You're like, well, I know how to do it. But like, to me, it's magic. I know. To other people, it it is kind of magical. It's like this creative act. You must be some creative genius. Well, no. I just have written literally tens of thousands of poems and read tons. Like, I kind of... We know how to do it. We're we're good at this. We're right. trained, right? You know, um, so uh, so I've been really wanting to sort of branch out into like corporate creativity seminars, business business creativity seminars. It seems to be something that people in uh, business settings want, uh, or people in academic settings want. Actually, people in kind of any setting want a sort of creativity seminar. How do you? How can you be that spontaneously creative? I have to be inspired to be creative and. And I'm like, I think inspiration is a bill of goods. I mean, it's a total sham. Yeah. You wait around all your life to be inspired. You know, why not just make a decision? Why not reduce it to kind of a set of decisions? Like decide to do this and start doing it and 
you know, make it good as you're, as you're doing it. Um, not everybody can do that, but I think there are ways to talk about it and there are sort of exercises you can go through. So let's, let's get up in front of a, a group of people and see if we can lead them through something like that. It, and it actually, that dovetails very nicely, which what, with what you said at the start of this interview, which was, you got to take the first step through the threshold. You know, you're the one, it's only on you to step from realm A to realm B. And if you could be up there and out there helping, oh no, I'm a type A personality. I can't think like that. Uh, I can see, I can see innate value in breaking down some of those barriers in other people's minds and espousing this sort of can-do attitude, you know? I mean, like, the type A personality is almost uniquely suited to do it because they are able to, in an instant, conceive of all contingencies and a response to all of those contingencies. <laughs> That's an incredibly stressful moment, of course, to think about what are all the different possibilities for the way this could go wrong and how how do I prevent those? But, I mean, that's creative thinking, like, in a, an explosive way. Yeah. You know? What, what, it's I, not too different from when you're in the middle of a poem and you're like, how, where's, where's the next, where's, you know, where's the next line? Where do I go with this? There are so many options. Um uh, what, what, what's the next, what's the adjective that goes before this noun? What's the next act in this? How do I, how do I find a way to an ending? These are pretty similar moves that you're making in your decision-making and in your uh, um, uh, conceiving of the possible decisions that you could make and evaluating them against each other and choosing one and going for it. I mean, I, I don't see that it's too different from, from driving a car in traffic, really. You're, you're just, you're checking all the mirrors and all the lanes and figuring out if you're going to, change lanes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're right. The, the stereotypical type a stay within your lane sort of personality has already mapped out all possible outcomes in their head. And that is a creative act. So turn it, harness it, utilize it. Like you just, just with that inspiring sentence right there, I could see like opening up a seminar of accountants or actuaries and be like, no, you guys don't understand. You already do this. Yeah, You're an so. actuary. You literally plan for 80 years in advance off the top of your head. You know, that is a creative act because you have created from nothing an entire, oh. an entire lifespan and what, what the ramifications of it are. Oh, wow. So well, type A people the, are creative. Yeah, I think so. And I mean, also they're, they're good at structure. They're good at sort of systematic, um, systematic thinking. And it's not like, you know, poems have a template under them or something like that, but a lot of them have a kind of basic expository structure. Like this, this, uh, this poem of the drunk businessman vomiting in Tokyo, um, it sort of has a, it leads out with a sort of introductory paragraph, right? You know, you get the first image of these drunk businessmen on the street, um, and then uh, some development, the middle part of it, with uh, you dodge and duck into a phone booth to avoid to avoid them doing this stuff, and yep. then a conclusion, um, you know, looking forward to eating an egg the next morning in the hotel. So, and it's just it's pretty pretty basic five paragraph essay type of structure, <laughs> which is kind of deep beginning, middle, and end stuff. And type A people know how to do that really really well. Oh, I I can see endless possibilities of this kind of work for the more staid, buttoned-up corporate type 
much more so than like, let's go play corporate paintball or you know, trust exercises, <laughs> let's go fall. Because paintball is pretty fun. Though. Paintball's oh, oh, I play paintball <laughs> once a year. It's really fun, but uh, but I don't see well, that's team building. I mean, I'd rather I'd rather build through this rather than you know, let's do the trust fall. Everyone catch Cindy in the parachute. <laughs> did they still do that? I don't know if they. Oh did. my god, I don't know if that that, that sounds like. I'm, uh, do they still do the paintball? I mean, I don't. Just, I don't. I'm just hearing lawyers salivating at all of that. Oh, uh, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm hearing. I'm hearing the uh, HR managers be like, "We gotta do everything with someone." <laughs> yeah. Oh wow, that that, uh, that turn of voice. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, that was that was sort of uh, my laid off moment. It was I was sitting at my desk and I saw the HR girl walk into my vice president's office and sit down, and then immediately my extension rang, and I go, "Oh, uh, that's this." Because yeah. <laughs> start I, cleaning out the desk. I'm like, I've never no, I had never seen that interaction before. Just usually my my boss at that time he kept his door open for everything. I mm. saw her walk in. I saw the door close and immediately bring and I'm like, hi. Can you come in here no, a minute? No. And I'm like, I know exactly what this is. I walked in, I'm like, today, today. They're like, today, today. I'm like, what do you want me to do? My boss goes, Hey, they're the ones who let you go. I don't you, you got work to do? You could finish it or you could walk out the door. I'm like, I turned out I'm the kind of guy who finished it. Wow. I, I at least tied up the loose ends and I walked out the door. Then people called me the next morning. They're like, what happened? And I'm like, well, I was one of the ones let go. Um, you're on your own. I sent everyone an email on where I hid everything. I can't so believe you finished I did. Work. I did the right thing. Did they sit there and watch you finish work? Um, no, my boss actually, he's like, it was actually sort of funny. It was like to spare the indignity of, he's like, this is me dismissing you. This is the end of it. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, I'm going to go out the back stairwell so you can leave at your own speed. I'm like, that was really uh, nice. It was really yeah. cool of them. So I did finish the work that I was owed. And, you know, I got a, cu- a couple texts and cu- phone calls over the next couple of days. But I'm like, nah, see you guys. And then I took it personally. Yeah. But I, it turns I, out I was the first had, of like 50. You know, people come in and stand there and watch me clean up my desk and escort Ooh. me to the escort me to the uh, to the parking lot Ooh. which is humiliating like you understand technically why they might do that yeah what if i go bonkers yeah and, like they're they're guarding against that but yeah, it's humiliating send the yeah. all staff and my boss yeah. told me to literally is like if you want to delete everything delete it i don't care and i'm like all right whatever um but yeah. uh but no, it was good i yeah. mean that's uh that's a sort of being thrown off a cliff instead of jumping off a cliff but that's yeah. when i started bartending yeah got laid when. off started bartending should have been bartending the whole time. Exactly. Why was I in that office in the first place? There you go. Bartending yeah. was a better move. Bartending. I became an art critic about 25 <laughs> minutes later. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's, absolutely, that's absolutely amazing. Um, all right. Let's cap this off for, for like one, one thing. Uh, people coming here to visit Durham and Raleigh, this is, a, this is a burgeoning area. It's become a tech hotbed. Corporations are relocating here for the, 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 the standard of living and the close partnership with all the universities around here. This is, this is, this is I don't want to say the rest of the states are not like this, but this is an island of happening right now. What are some things people, if they come down here to the Raleigh-Durham area, what are some of the arts and culture they could experience uh, from your lens, just things that you like to do? 
Wow, that's a great question. Um, I should have brought my calendar. Uh, oh, it doesn't have to be ex- actual no. dates I mean, there's, and times. There's a but- lot, there, there are a lot of visual arts uh, going on at kind of all levels. You know, we have some major museums that are doing the sort of major museum show things, um, but a lot of good agile little galleries that are, and and a lot of um, a lot of really terrific visual artists. Uh, there's a, a MFA studio art program at UNC Chapel. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hill, uh, one at uh, UNC Greensboro, which isn't uh, but 50 miles from here. Um, there's an MFA program at Duke in experimental documentary arts. So there are a lot of young artists who are kind of being cranked out of these programs. And a lot of them land here. A lot of them stay here, even if they are not North Carolinians to start. They right. kind of end up becoming North Carolinians because they see that, oh, I can afford to live here. I can, you know, maybe if I have a spouse who has a job, we can buy a house and, you know, I don't. I don't have to go to New York and try to figure out where to live because that's hard. You know, you end up out in Queens at this point. Right? <laughs> well, because no, because oh, no, nobody you can do it in Brooklyn. You, you, you know, don't end up in Queens anymore because no. Amazon's moving to Queens. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, Queens is gone too. Yeah. yeah. So you end up, you know, in in the in the Iowa suburbs of New York or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah. You know, you, you can you can you can land here and live. So a, a lot of artists do. So there are a lot of really accomplished um, and interesting contemporary artists living around in your neighborhood uh, and showing in, in galleries. So you're seeing, you know, some really hefty stuff in, in these, in these small galleries, which I think people probably coming from elsewhere maybe wouldn't expect. And there's also uh, a really lively theater scene um, because we don't have a lot of theater spaces. A lot of those productions end up being in unconventional spaces. So, you know, you have like a bar crawl theater performance where the performance is moving from, you know, through six different bars and a skateboard park um, or warehouse uh, events or shows in a strip mall that has been abandoned for 20 years that's going to be redeveloped. Or, you know, it's just like you get you get to see productions in those kinds of spaces. And, um, and da- dance uh, companies do that as well. The American Dance Festival has also been located uh, at Duke University for a really long time and uh, years and years and years. And they bring sort of, I mean, they're one of the great dance festivals every uh, July, June and July uh, in the world. So uh, there's a huge dance culture that's, uh, that's built around that that um, is you know, really centered in Durham, but really throughout the whole triangle. There are just a lot of dancers and a lot of dance companies that are working at a really high level. What's the what's the third part of the triangle? Uh, Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill, Carver. Oh, Carborough. that's Chapel part Hill, of the Carborough. triangle. Yeah. So it's Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill is the triangle. Yes. Got it, got it. And Wake Forest is somewhere in here too. 
Yeah, Wake Forest is a little ways away. Greensboro is pretty close. There's a ton of terrific stuff. Going so it's a on pentagon. In Greensboro too. It's a septagon. It's a heptagon. Yeah, hey, who it's, knows? <laughs> it's a polygon. It's a, it's a, it's an ever expanding circle. It is a writhing polygon. <laughs> right. <laughs> a writhing. There's yeah. the poet at work. Yeah. I've never seen a polygon writhe yeah. before. You, you, you Actually, stay no, here. You'll see it. Wait, wait, wait. No, I probably did. It was probably like a Windows 95 screensaver. Remember that oh one? Oh my god. That was yeah. a writhing polygon. Yeah. It, you know, it always sort of turned your stomach a little bit, but you couldn't stop looking at it. All right. Chris Vitiello, Poetry Fox, want to cap us off with one final poem for the night? Oh, yeah. Here, let me, let's stick it on the back of this. All right. Let's stick it on the back of that all one. Right. Um, so what's another word? All that, right. I guess this, I guess this is, uh, this, this is, is your turn. This is my word. Vivaldi. Vivaldi. Oh, yeah. Again, there's something immensely satisfying about that noise that I cannot, I don't, will this noise exist forever? Yeah, sure. These things are making a comeback. Yeah. I mean, I guess we still know what a telegraph sounds like. (laughs) Do you? I think I have one somewhere. I have an accordion, which is sort of like the musical equivalent of the typewriter. Except for that one symphonetta, which was done with the typewriter, and I think it's the theme song to some NPR work right now. All right. Now, typewriters are all over the place. All right. Tom, Tom Hanks has brought typewriters back. Do you know this? No. He's a big super typewriter head. Yeah. Right. And uh, I even wrote a book of short stories a couple of years ago yeah. where there's a typewriter featured in every short story. He, really? He, he works on typewriters. Yeah. Really? This is sort of a thing. Yeah. I get people asking me all the time. They're like, "Do you use a typewriter because of Tom Hanks?" I'm like, "No, <laughs> no." But uh, I'm glad that he's you know bringing it out. Yeah. Yeah. They're they're around. All right, before we end with this moment, this is how we're going to end the moment with a reading based on the word Vivaldi by Chris Vitiello, the Poetry Fox. But before that, everyone, come down here, enjoy the Durham, Raleigh, Chapel Hill Triangle. It's way cool. It's super hospitable. It's awesome, awesome, awesome. Um, But more importantly, if you can't visit here, take inspiration from Chris and know that out there in your communities are other like-minded people who want to create, who want to do art. All you have to do is open the door and shake a hand and start a conversation. Anyone can do it. So never be daunted. Uh, Mr. Poetry Fox, Chris Vidiello, end us with a poem on Vivaldi. Well, before that, thank you so much for having me. Oh, of course. On the podcast. This has been a blast. We should talk for the rest of the afternoon anyway. I think we'll get we the microphones will. out of the way and keep Yeah. Going. All right. A Vivaldi poem. Vivaldi hated winter, but he he had to do it in the four seasons. His hands froze, so the notes held and the music faltered and stilled. Winter sucks, thought Vivaldi, (laughs) but he still knocked it out to get to spring. Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Vitiello. Have a great afternoon and evening. Bye-bye. This has been A Lot to Learn with Austin Rogers. A Lot to Learn with Austin Rogers is produced by me, Austin Rogers, alongside Maria Gibson and Limitless Media. 
follow us on Austin uh, Rogers at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Austin Rogers if you want to donate. And there's the Twitter, Austin Tylero, and Instagram at Augra27. Please write me on the Twitters or the Instagrams and let me know uh, what new subjects you want to hear or if you've got anyone that you think is really cool that you think I should interview. Please let me know. Reach out to me and I look forward to hearing from all you guys. Thank you and look forward to next week.